from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Religious Freedom and the Law. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with Thomas Seberg, James L. Oberstar Professor of Law and Public Policy at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, President of the NAE, here with Tom Berg. Based out of the University of St. Thomas School of Law in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Tom is among the nation's leading scholars of law and religion. He has written numerous chapters, journal articles, op-eds, and other articles on religion, constitutional law, politics, and society. In addition to being a scholar, he's also an advocate for religious freedom, authoring and supervising briefs in religious liberty cases, and many that NAE has joined. His work has been cited several times by the U.S. Supreme Court and Federal Courts of Appeals. Tom clerked in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and also practiced law for a while in Chicago. He holds degrees from Northwestern University, Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and the University of Chicago, and I could go on and on with these academic accolades and the awards that he's received, but we want to get into the conversation. So thanks for being with us today, Tom. Thank you, Leith. Great to uh, have the chance to talk with you. All right. Religious freedom. It's talked about a lot. Some say religious freedom. Some say religious liberty. And sometimes we talk about things and then we don't necessarily know what we're talking about, at least in terms of some kind of a definition or uh, others have skewed what the meaning is. And that might be the case with religious freedom. So how do you define religious freedom? I define religious freedom as the uh, ability of people of all faiths to live consistently with their faith, their deepest beliefs, uh, presumptively free from government penalty for doing so. So let me unpack that with three quick points. First, religious freedom means the right not just to believe, but to act according to one's beliefs. And not just in church, not just in the house of worship, but in all aspects of life, in charitable work, in your daily life. So that's first. Second, uh, it has to be guaranteed for all faiths. If it's guaranteed only for some, then it's not really religious freedom, but rather it's a sort of policy means of advancing those faiths as against others. Uh, which is a different a different thing from religious freedom. Uh, and finally, third, religious freedom should be broad, but it's not absolute. There are boundaries on it set by the, the necessities of society and the rights of others. So that's how I define it. All right, so belief and behavior is for all and broad, but not absolute. And by that, I'm assuming... That if somebody says my religion is that I can perjure myself or I can violate other people, uh, do physical harm, obviously that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about religious liberty and freedom, right? That's right. And the framers would have taken those kinds of, of limits for granted. So when they refer to the free exercise of religion, they're talking about you know that kind of understanding, a broad freedom. But uh, of course, there's a framework of laws that are here uh, so that we can all live together and all uh, and all uh, have, have our rights and, and, and live in, in some degree of harmony. All right, so let's talk about where it's at in the United States and where are the religious freedom issues. I, I was at a meeting and uh, a speaker um, in this 
group of experts uh, was kind of complaining about the limits of religious freedom in the United States and how bad things are. And I said to him, okay, compared to the other 200 countries of the world, what country would you say is better? And he said, well, there is no country that's better. The United States is absolutely number one. So at the same time, he was sort of complaining about the way it is, but he was saying it's better than anybody else. So what are the issues? Where are we at in the United States on all this? Well, what you say is a very good point. As we uh, express concern about real religious freedom issues in the United States, we we have to acknowledge uh, the the blessing of religious liberty that Americans have, and uh, the fact that in so many ca- countries of the world, it's just far worse uh, for for people of various faiths, including. Uh, so often Christians. So in focusing on these issues, we, we can't be taking away from the, the real persecution that, that Christians and others face elsewhere. So with that said, there are still things to be concerned about in the United States. This is a, a huge country and things can be very good in some ways and they can be very bad in others. Uh, and what I see, um, and I guess I'll focus on what I see as the, what's, what's kind of going wrong, um, is a pattern of selectivity uh, among too many people as to religious freedom. Uh, supporting religious freedom for the people with whom I sympathize, but not for others. Uh, religious freedom for me, but not for thee. Um, liberals, for example, support the rights of Muslims and other small religious minorities, and the ACLU will go to bat for them. But they have little or no sympathy, to say the least, for conservative Christian individuals and organizations who are forced by non-discrimination law, non-discrimination laws in some circumstances to facilitate behavior that they regard as as wrong. Um, and then on the other hand, conservative Christians, I think rightly, assert their own freedom. But uh, look at President Trump's original proposal to ban not just travel, not just from six nations, but all Muslims from entering the United States. That was the original proposal. That was supported by 71% of Republicans in some polls. That means by huge numbers of evangelical Christians as well. I think that today we all need to recommit to supporting religious freedom for everyone. Uh, Justice Holmes once put that as freedom for the thought we hate, and I think we need to recommit to that. One of the questions here is who's in power or who is the majority, and Christians have a long history of majority status in the United States and therefore have felt pretty protected in terms of religion. We are increasingly a diverse country and I sense there's just a growing fear among Christians and particularly among evangelical Christians and and Catholics also because often with evangelicals and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops there's an alignment of concern. So what do you think are the particular issues that Christians uh, perhaps slipping out of majority status or out of power may be dealing with? Well, yes, you see a whole a whole range of them. Uh, many of them have to do with the, the, the culture wars. Probably most of them have to do with the so-called culture wars, which are heavily focused on 
sexual morality issues, uh, gay rights, transgender rights, uh, uh, abortion, the, the, the divide over abortion. Um, you just have a real uh, cultural divide there. And as, as you say, um, Christians have historically been the majority. Um, they still are, at least culturally, in large parts of the country. But there are other parts of the country, in blue states, so to speak, where conservative Christian views really are becoming very much minority views and are, and are vulnerable to, uh, to discrimination or un, uh, unduly burdensome laws where does where where is the real um you know kind of the cutting edge of those things uh as a practical matter i think for the church uh what what christians need probably the categories should be most concerned about are the rights of faith-based service organizations so relief agencies like world vision adoption agencies whether catholic evangelical other religious adoption agencies soup kitchens uh, Christian colleges. There is so much talk now about for-profit businesses owned by Christians, like the bakery or the photography business. But those cases, I think they're important, but they're relatively infrequent. We will see, on the other hand, years of litigation over religious nonprofits, uh, nonprofits, right, and whether they can continue to serve others and adhere to their views on sexual morality or abortion uh, without suffering uh, serious penalties like civil damages in the you know the tens of thousands of dollars for acts of discrimination or the the loss of tax exempt status both of those are i i don't think uh you know out out of the out of the question uh, those are uh, threats uh Coming down the line, the latter probably a uh, tax exempt status, probably a, uh, some time away as a you know, threatened loss. But uh, but there are real concerns about faith based service organizations. So you make distinctions when you talk about um, religious organizations, nonprofits, r religious people who own for profits, but there are also differences um, in different judicial districts, different states, different municipalities, uh, federal government. In recent years, some states have passed laws banning discrimination on uh, sexual or, uh, orientation and gender identity. And I've been told that something like 31% of the people in the United States are under SOGI laws already, but there's question as far as uh, the federal government is concerned. So we go back to 1964 and the Civil Rights Act, this is off the top of my head. I think it's Title II there. The, the question is that can sexual orientation issues related to the Civil Rights Act that was primarily about race, should sexual orientation be treated the same as race in the law, and particularly with the Civil Rights Act? Uh, I think sexual orientation is enough like race to justify a uh, prima facie, to use a legal term, pro prohibition on discrimination in the commercial sphere. That is, there should be laws against sexual orientation discrimination. I, I, now we'll talk about 
protections for religious organizations and for religious believers um, in, a, in a second. But I think there's uh, enough similarity in that sexual orientation is uh, uh, a, a feature of human persons that is very difficult to change. It is deep-seated. Whatever one thinks about the rightness or wrongness of it and the possibility of change, it's not something that happens easily. Um, so and race is something that, that you simply can't, can't change. But uh, it, it, uh, there's, there's enough similarity there. And gay people have also been the targets of unfair prejudice. There's just no question about that. To me, those provide reasons for having non-discrimination laws. That's my first point. But you can affirm that and still say that it's not the same as racial discrimination. So that's that's the second point. And, th and that means that we ought to be open to exemptions and protections for uh, dissenters from the, from the, uh, the non-discrimination position. Racism, is, racism has been the most destructive form of discrimination in our history. It caused a civil war that claimed 700,000 lives. Uh, it imposed an oppressive system that, you know, starkly separated the races and subjected black people to pervasive discrimination and violence. And we took a very hard line against that system because of its rigidity and oppressiveness. There are almost no protections in the law for any kind of conscience-based uh, racial discrimination. And I don't think we should go back on that commitment, given, among other things, as we have learned in the last half of 2017, there are, there's uh, continuing racism today in America. It doesn't follow that, that we should take that same hard line in a different context. And I say this speaking to people on, on the left or in, in the middle. Even the Supreme Court, when it uh, affirmed same-sex marriage, said that opposition to same-sex marriage often stems from, quote, decent and honorable religious and philosophical premises, end quote, which it would never say about racial discrimination. We have stripped all racist organizations of tax exemptions. And if you applied that to organizations that affirm traditional views on sexual, sexual morality, you would strip the tax exemption from tens of thousands of evangelical Catholic and Orthodox Jewish schools and charities. That is a recipe for even deeper cultural division than we have now, which is already bad enough. So I would say that there is enough similarity to have non-discrimination laws, but enough differences to justify a a different and more pluralistic approach to the protection of dissenters. It seems, actually, I think we can go beyond seems and say it, it is a polarized conflict between those who have different views about sexuality and marriage. Is there a way forward on this? Is there a common ground? Is there um, hope for a resolution that is going to be uh, acceptable on all sides? It's difficult uh, because many people on both sides view giving anything to the other as a, a, a symbolic defeat. And we are so often on both sides, on all sides of the political spectrum today, engaged in symbolic politics. 
Um, it's also difficult because, uh, as as you were saying earlier, Leith, uh, you have uh, different majorities in different places in the country. So in in some states, one in red states, one side wins, and in blue states, the other side wins. Where do you find compromise? I think there are some solutions that could give each side something important. One solution, for example, would be to enact gay rights laws with significant religious exemptions in some of those 30 states where such laws don't exist. That would mean for LGBT people that they would get protection from discrimination in employment in rural areas where they are currently vulnerable. They may already have protection in cities, but cities are already more tolerant of same-sex relationships. What a statewide law would do is protect those people in rural areas where they are more vulnerable. Conservative Christians, on the other hand, with uh, if there were strong exemptions, would get protection written into law before the culture turns even further against their views. And I think it we have to be realistic and recognize that the culture is, all of the polls say that the culture will be turning further against uh, traditional views on this issue. Uh, each generation is more supportive of, uh, of same-sex rights uh, than the previous one. And the prototype for what you've described, the combination of religious liberty and civil rights is uh, Utah, and they did pass and have, in effect, laws similar to what you just described, right? Yeah, that's right. And it really could be a, a model for, for other places. Uh, if you, you know, if you asked which state passed, was the most recent one to pass a gay rights law, would anyone guess it was deep red Mormon Utah? Uh, you, you wouldn't think so. Uh, but the, the, the LDS church took a, a leading role in kind of helping to broker this fairness for all approach. It's difficult to extend that to other states, and so far it hasn't succeeded, but there are uh, there are efforts underway, and, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and at least the possibility of finding some win-win solutions rather than just the continuing uh, uh, battles. You mentioned about Christian colleges. Uh, they, in particular, seem to be at risk and struggling. In 2016, there was a Senate bill in California to um, pretty much eliminate Cal grants for schools that discriminated on, uh, on same-sex marriage. You, you already sort of tease us a little bit. What, what's at stake for these Christian colleges? Right, so that bill that you refer to would have taken away or at least threatened to take away um, state-funded grants for students who attended those colleges uh, if the college had any religiously based policy disfavoring same-sex or transgender conduct. So the, the, the consequence would be directly to the students uh, and then indirectly to the, to the colleges. Uh, as the colleges pointed out, that step would have not only harmed them as institutions, but it would have harmed uh, students and, and disproportionately, in partic uh, particular, Hispanic students who make up a, uh, 
a disproportionately high percentage of students at, the, at these uh, mostly evangelical, but also some Catholic colleges. Um, eventually, most of the bill was withdrawn at the end of uh, later in 2016. What was left was only a requirement that colleges give clear notice of their policies about conduct um, uh, so that prospective students could decide whether they could live consistent with those rules and decide whether to attend that school or, or go somewhere else, go to one of the you know hundreds of other colleges that there uh, that there are in California to go to, public and private. So that issue was kind of kind of dodged in California, but undoubtedly there'll be more efforts like this to increase regulation in the future. You know that people say what what happens in California first spreads to the nation. Uh, so I don't think this issue will be going away. And particularly the threat to to student uh, uh, grants uh, and or state student loans or whatever could be could be really serious. When defining religious freedom, you refer to it being religious freedom for everybody. And th there are cases like the New Jersey case with a mosque and the municipality that kept changing the rules so that they couldn't get a building permit. What? Why should Christians work on protecting people of other faiths? and not just be focused upon protecting our own beliefs and behaviors? I think there are two kinds of reasons. One is a matter of principle. Christians know that a commitment to of faith, a relationship with God, with the divine, is a matter of the heart and the soul. It cannot be real or valid if it's coerced by government. And it's a matter of human dignity, the human soul, the human person should be free to seek and respond to God, even if that response is mistaken. This is what the Catholic Church, uh, after, after many centuries of questioning this uh, or denying this, uh, affirmed in the great uh, Declaration on Religious Freedom at the uh, Vatican II, uh, which really brought Catholics and evangelicals together on um, uh, in terms of the premises for religious freedom. It's a matter of human dignity. Uh, it's not only the true views of faith that have rights. People have rights. Human persons have rights. And those rights include seeking and responding to uh, the divine, even if that search or that response is mistaken. So that's a principled reason. The second reason is a pragmatic one. If Christians want to preserve freedom for their own religious exercise, they have to recognize it for others. You won't get sympathy for your plight if you don't show it for others. All right, let's talk about the Supreme Court. So you are quoted in some Supreme Court decisions. That is extraordinary. Um, what, what do you think about, uh, what do you make of our newest justice, uh, Neil Gorsuch? Uh, Gorsuch has uh, cl clearly a powerful mind. He has a wonderful, witty, elegant writing style. You know, I teach law students, uh, and we have, we have to read over and over again Supreme Court opinions. And ever since I've been teaching, the justice who was the most fun to read, whether you agreed with his views or not, was Justice Scalia. Students love him even when they love his writing, even when they hate his opinions. 
Uh, and Gorsuch is is going to fill that that role. His style is a little different than Scalia's, but he's a, a wonderful writer and, and a pleasure to, to read. So just as a matter of my professional day-to-day duties, I, I'm glad to have him on the court. And he has a lot of intellectual confidence, uh, finally. When you put those three together, uh, he looks like he will be um, effective in advocating his positions and unafraid to do so right from the beginning. I mean, he came on the court and immediately was asking questions in oral argument and uh, taking strong stands in, uh, in cases. And his record on the Court of Appeals also indicates that he'll be a strong defender of religious freedom. Uh, his record on the Court of Appeals and, and in the one Supreme Court case that we've had so far uh, indicate that. So he, he should be a strong defender of religious freedom by all indications. All right, so let's talk about one of those cases. Um, in June of 2017, the Supreme Court heavily uh, sided with this Missouri Lutheran Church, actually their preschool, and funding for, I think it was the surface of the playground, and claiming that they were discriminated against because they were a religious organization. And the, the, the court, by uh, a not narrow majority, found for the school, the church. So what's that? all about and why is that case so important uh yes it was an interesting case uh and important so interesting it involved uh as you said resurfacing the playground with rubber from recycled tires so it was a simultaneous program of uh, recycling an environmental program and a safety program for playgrounds that essentially any institution could apply for and you would be considered based on for for funding based on the, the need to resurface the playground how many kids were using it how severe the the problems with the current playground were and so on the church was disqualified even though it would have uh, ranked high in the uh, application uh, ranking uh, given those other uh, based on those other factors, it was disqualified from applying because it was a church. And Missouri had uh, a rule. The Missouri agency had a rule forbidding uh, the consideration of churches. Uh, so the Supreme Court ruled for the church in the in the church's challenge to that discrimination, to that being uh, the church being singled out for exclusion from a benefit program. The court had previously said that the state could include religious institutions in government aid programs like this, as long as it gave them this, you know, equal rights with other applicants, no greater rights, but, but equal rights. But it hadn't said that the state had to allow that equal inclusion. And so Missouri had, had, uh, relied on that distinction and said, well, we could include churches, we could allow churches to apply, but we don't have to. And there are many states that are reluctant to include religious organizations, uh, partly because of state level laws and provisions that seem to include, uh, forbid including religious institutions in government aid. Some of those go back a long ways to the mid-1800s when there were fights over uh, money for Catholic and Lutheran schools. Uh, and uh, at that time, most Protestants were against 
uh, any kind of money for religious schooling. Uh, so those provisions go go way back, uh, and some states uh, have them and, and rely on them to exclude religious organizations. The Lutheran Church case now, called Trinity Lutheran, that the court just decided, says that the court will require those states to allow religious institutions to compete equally, at least in some situations. Uh, that's, a, that's a big distinction. It's not just that the state may include religious organizations, it has to give them equal access. The court focused on the fact that this was a total exclusion of the church, regardless uh, of whether the money would be used for a religious purpose or not. So you might distinguish, for example, money to refurbish the sanctuary versus money to refurbish the playground. The playground is a secular matter, some courts would say. Uh, a kid who skins his knee on the playground, uh, skins his knee whether he's a Lutheran or a Baptist or Catholic or Jewish or Muslim. Um, but it could, be, the, the court may still treat ref money to refurbish the sanctuary as quite different, and it might treat uh, money for tuition at religious schools as different because tuition encompasses not just secular teaching in religious schools, but also the religious teaching. So the scope of this opinion is still uh, open. Uh, we'll see what happens with it in, in future cases. But this saying that the state must be non-discriminatory in some cases is a big step. Tom, sort of a sidebar question, but when the Supreme Court makes a decision like that and states or municipalities or counties, if they have laws in place, what do they do? Do they have to go back and rewrite their laws or are they automatically changed by a Supreme Court decision? Because there's got to be thousands of examples like that. Well, around the country, after a decision like Trinity Lutheran, lawyers who advise cities and states are uh, advising their their clients on what to do to uh, avoid a lawsuit. Uh, the laws don't change automatically just because the Supreme Court has ruled about the Constitution. Right? States can states have their have their laws and they can enact the laws that they want. And the only requirement is that those laws not uh, contradict the Constitution. So the lawyers will be advising states on what to do, and uh, then uh, if they don't. Do it if they don't do anything, and someone is aggrieved. Then there will be more, there will be future lawsuits, and those lawsuits will be decided under, under the Trinity Lutheran decision. Sounds like there's guaranteed employment for attorneys long into the future. <laughs> well, you know, the, yes, and the and the court writes a uh, an opinion that in some ways is 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 broad and states an important principle, but it's also it's also pretty narrow, and especially Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the opinion in Trinity Lutheran, likes to write these narrow opinions. He 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 said he always described himself as a just judicially modest judge, um, and that's good. In a uh, there's certainly advantages to that because the court can't anticipate sort of all the complications of later cases. So let's just say something about this one, but it does. It does leave employment for lawyers in the future. I have to admit it. <laughs> All right. So with the guarantee that you don't have to be a qualified prophet, you can just guess, 
What do you expect in the future with regard to religious freedom in America? And is it going to be increasingly controversial or are we at a peak of this? Or what do you foresee coming in the days ahead? I think it will be increasingly controversial. There is one point of view that says perhaps as, as, as for example, same-sex marriage becomes more um, accepted, then the need to push back against dissenters will reduce. Um, I think that the divide here is just so emotional and deep that I there are just simply opponents of the traditional marriage view, and they are going to continue to try to attack that view uh, because of the harm that they believe it causes, and I just don't see that going away. Uh, and uh, religious freedom defenders, Christians and other religious freedom defenders, need to uh, need to uh, argue for and vigorously assert religious freedom in those situations. My other concern about this, though, for the future is goes back to this thing I said at the beginning about religious freedom being for all. My concern is that religious freedom is increasingly and will be increasingly associated with all sorts of other culture wars issues, like, for example, immigration. Uh, or eth eth the kind of ethnic racial conflicts that we're, that we've seen come out in the last half of 2017, and, and even before that, the last few years. Um, I under I understand why so many Christians felt they had to support Donald Trump. There were issues about the Supreme Court and abortion and religious freedom and so on. Uh, on which they could quite reasonably feel that the other side's views were very hostile. But at the same time, I think Christians are going to have to stand up. They have, but they have to do it even more and continue to do it against some of the racial and anti-immigrant and nativist overtones that we have uh, in our in our politics right now. Uh, Ours is a global faith. It's not a nationalist faith. It's not an ethnic faith. It's not a white faith. Christianity is a global faith. And the case for religious freedom, to get back to that, will lose credibility if it's associated with all sorts of other positions that are, um, uh, well, just often not even in, uh, consistent with historic Christianity. So I really worry about that. I think it's going to be very important for Christians to defend their religious freedom, but also be uh, vigorous in defending the rights of other people. And uh, I, I just hope that our polarization won't uh, prevent that from happening. All right. You are an expert in this field. You are a professor at um, Minnesota's largest private university, an award-winning law school. You write briefs for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court cites you. What about the average American? What can the average person without this level of influence and expertise do to promote greater protection of religious freedom? 
You know, I'm going to say something of, uh, kind of indirect about that, uh, or indirect ways to do that, that I nevertheless feel are very important. Um, you know, you can you can get involved in, in, in religious freedom issues directly. But more indirectly, but extremely important, is Christians should do the mission of the church. They should serve others. They should make disciples. The case about California colleges shows, I think, that even hostile legislators will sometimes back off when it's dramatized to the public that religious organizations do a great deal of service to the vulnerable and contribute to the common good uh, in our society. And religious liberty provides the space for organizations to do that work and continue to be committed to the religious beliefs and identity that give them their inspiration. So the connect, uh, we need to continue to do the work of the church uh, and serve the common good, and that will be one of the best indirect ways of making religious freedom credible and, I think, advancing it. Our guest on today's conversation has been Tom Berg. He is the James Oberstar Professor of Law and Public Policy at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Tom. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.